I noticed you didn't even try to do my last name, so that's good. The last name is Hakenen. Uh, I'm Finnish, so uh, uh, that doesn't mean I speak Finnish, though. So. Um, so so, let me just give you a context of where we're headed. Uh, the topic here, and it may not have been abundantly clear in the way we titled it, uh, is we're going to talk about evangelism. And we're talking about humility and evangelism. The way we're going to do this is I'm going to talk for probably 30-ish minutes, and then I want to do some Q&A at the end, just because I want to just get your thoughts on what I'm sharing today. So if, if you think of anything, just jot it down. But I want to start by sharing a, a kind of a dark moment. It, the, the date was December 3rd, 2013, and that was the day that I ruined everything. I had a conference that we were about to host in the Lansing area that I was super excited about. And so what happened is I kind of slipped into an old habit and nearly ruined my reputation and my marriage because what I did on December 3rd, 2013, is I attempted to trim my own beard. Um, and, and, and my beard, which is better than yours, I know this is the thing on humility, but it just objectively is. Um, I was trimming uh, because just I wanted to be able to be all clean, you know, nice and trimmed for this conference. And I got about here and I turned in, kind of toward my chin, and just sliced off just a whole swath of my beard. So I had to trim it nice and short. And I walked down the stairs at my house and my wife took one look at me and she clapped her hands like that. And I said, what? And she said, you've lost all of your funkiness. And that was the day that I made a commitment that I was never going to trim my own beard again, a commitment that I kept until COVID, but I didn't have a good barber. And I asked questions around uh, other bearded men to see if I could find a good barber in town. And then I met my barber, Brian. And the day I walked into the, the shop back in 2013, it was not like quick clips, sport clips, you know, the probably a lot of the barbershops your, your, your dad went to. Uh, this is a, a barbershop that was filled with dark mahogany wood and leather and metal and skulls with like heavy metal playing. And my barber, Brian, is the personification of all of those things. <laughs> He's tattooed and pierced. He's got a piercing right on his cheek right here. This guy's never stepped foot in a church once in his life, but man, can that guy trim a beard. So for three years, uh, for 10 years now, every three weeks, I go in and I sit in the same chair and Brian says, same old, same old. And I say, yep. And then he goes to work uh, keeping the, the beard nice and, and trimmed for me. And over the course of the last 10 years, we've talked about sports and politics and music and film and Jesus. And I've shared the gospel with him explicitly like six times at least, but he's always just slowly, politely listened. But that all changed in March of this year. I went in in March and he trimmed my beard up and then he, he, he said, hey, come here for a second. And he kind of pulled me to the side and he said, you know how you've always said that whenever I'm ready to talk to you about Jesus, you'll do that? I'm ready. And I couldn't believe it. Like this is the last guy in the world you would think would ever want to have a conversation about Jesus. But apparently the girl that he's dating has this little daughter who's been asking about Jesus and, and they don't know how to answer her questions. And so he said, we want you to, to sit down with us and we don't want counseling, but we just want to talk about Jesus. And I said, that's great because I'm a terrible counselor and I love to talk about Jesus. And so he goes, this is the plan. Uh, let's talk the week before Easter 
and we schedule it for the Monday before Easter. And he goes, and then we're going to take the whole family to church. It'll be the first time we've ever been to church. We're going to come to church on Easter. And I was overjoyed. And then on Monday, he texted me and said, I have to cancel because my girlfriend just had emergency kidney surgery and she's going to be in the hospital. And I said, can I come to the hospital? And he says, no, we want to be alone. And, and then he didn't come to Easter. And he called me on Saturday and said, I know you probably need an Easter trim, so I'll open up the shop. So he opened up the shop and he said, we'll have our conversation about Jesus when she's doing better. She's she's still recovering, but I haven't had the conversation with them about Jesus. So Sunday, this last Sunday in church, I was sitting next to my friend Kristen and I met Kristen at the gym years and years and years ago. And she overheard me mentioning that I was going to England. And she said, hey, I used to live in England and they have my favorite candy bar. And so she told me about this candy bar. So of course, when I was in England, I went to a grocery store and I found this candy bar and I came back with three of them for her. And I just went into the gym and I brought her these candy bars and said, hey, here's your candy bars. And she's like, you really brought these back? Oh, I schlepped them all the way across the Atlantic for me. And I said, yeah. And so I gave her the candy bars and we became friends. And so we'd work out at this gym together and I, we would talk about all kinds of stuff and eventually started talking about Jesus. And then I broke both of my arms working out uh, at the gym, which is another story for another day. But the moral of the story is exercise is bad for you. Uh, And so I stopped working out at that gym. But then one day Kristen called me and she said, hey, I've been dating a guy that goes to your church. And they say missionary dating doesn't work. Uh, I've been dating a guy that goes to your church and I'm ready to become a Christian. But I have one thing that is stopping me. And I don't want to tell you what it is until you and I sit down to talk about it. But can we grab coffee and talk about it? I said, absolutely. So I just knew what it was. I knew it was going to be homosexuality, uh, trans issues, because we'd worked out with a lot of gay people, a lot of trans people at our gym. And so I just assumed that's what it was. I prepared myself. I got there and she sat down and she said, the one thing I'm wondering is, is it possible for me to be pro-choice and a Christian? And so I shared with her how I felt like the arguments for the pro-life position arise from the same arguments that uh, we get the, the fact that we need a savior in, in Jesus. But that ultimately the main thing is that she had to come to Christ. She had to deal with her sin and her position with Jesus. And that the other stuff we could deal with later, that there, it wasn't the thing to stop her from becoming a Christian. And so Kristen last year came to Christ. She was baptized and Sunday in church, she was sitting next to me. And when we had a time of corporate prayer to pray for the person next to you, Kristen was the one praying for me. I still don't know where she's at on that issue. But I know that she has uh, come to Christ 10 days ago. I was in New York City in a cab and my cabbie was Turkish. And he asked me what I did for a living. He actually said it this way. He said, he said, are you in finance? And I said, no. And he said, are you a lawyer? And I said, do I look like a lawyer? And he, he, and he said, well, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. He said, really, Catholic or Orthodox? <laughs> and I said, well, um, actually, a third, I, I'm, I'm Protestant. And he goes, there's a third? And I said, you would not even believe it. I said, underneath Protestantism, there's another whole layer. And he said, I, and, and I said, so if you say you're Turkish, can I presume that, that you're Muslim? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm Muslim. I said, are you a practicing Muslim? And he said, no, I'm not practicing. I said, why not? And he said, because there's just so many rules and laws you have to follow. And I said, you know that that is precisely the point of Protestantism. I said that Jesus has done all the work that we need to do. That There's nothing left for us to do. 
that when Jesus lived the sinless life that we couldn't live and he obeyed the law that we cannot keep, that he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again conquering um, death and uh, the law and put, buttoning that up and putting a period on the end of it. And I said, so there's nothing left to do except to believe in Jesus. And he shook his head and he said, I can't believe there's a third one. That guy didn't come to Christ that day, but I'm praying that one day in glory uh, I'll meet him. Now, now, why did I just tell you those three stories? which are all recent for me. The reason I told you those stories um, is because if I asked you eyeball to eyeball right now, when was the last time you explicitly shared the gospel with someone? I know the answer I'm going to get. And I know it because I've asked that question hundreds of times. I've asked it of people who are everyday churchgoers. I've asked it of people aspiring to the work of ministry. I've asked it to pastors. And most people, they stop and there's this big pause because they're trying to think of it. And then once they come up with it, they're trying to think, is, was that actually an explicit sharing of the gospel that I did with that person? And, 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 and most of the time, they can't come up with something. Or, or if they do, it, it's really an old story or it's not an explicit sharing of the gospel. And when I talk to pastors, you know, they might talk about a sermon that they preach. It was really gospel-centered or somebody that they met in the lobby and shared the gospel with. But I'm rarely, in anybody that I talk to, have somebody who's able to say, I sat down with somebody eyeball to eyeball and shared the gospel with them about how Jesus wants to save them. And the reason I told you the stories at the beginning was not to try to position myself at a conference about humility as some sort of super skilled evangelist. Rather, each of those stories gets at the heart of why we don't share our faith. I think we're afraid. And every one of those situations could bring you fear. Walking into that barber shop with metal and skulls and heavy metal, and my, and my friend Brian, you would think that guy's never coming to Jesus. You'd be scared to share the gospel with him. What about the woman at the gym? I mean, sometimes as men, we're, we're kind of afraid to talk to, to women, especially in a context like that. And then she says that she's pro-choice. It makes it even harder to have that conversation. So we're afraid. And then a Muslim cab driver? There's all kinds of layers to that one. But each one of these people is a person created in the image of God that needs to know that there is a Savior that loves them and died on the cross for their sins. So my goal today is not to shame you. We have enough of that in our society. (laughs) Rather, I would like to propose something. That there is no better use of your time in your life than to tell people about Jesus. Think about it. All day long, every day, people are searching for something. They don't know what it is. But Solomon tells us what it is. I mean, he said the eternity is placed in the heart of man, but no one can do the work of God from beginning to end. There is this this gap inside of us, the size of eternity, and it is the driving force behind everything happening in our culture. It's the reason people have mindless flings. It's the reason they look for meaning in relationships. It's It's the thing behind our culture's obsession with identity and sexuality. It's the reason that people uh, uh, flip through TikTok trying to fill a void with tiny little videos. It's the reason we, we game and we get into sports and we manicure our lawn the way we do is because we're searching for something. We just don't know how to put our finger on what that thing is. And yet we know what it is, don't we? We know that the thing that they're searching for has a name because it's a person. It's Jesus who said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life they're searching for. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and Jesus could have shared that message any way he wanted. He's God. <laughs> you know those starling murmurations in the sky? Have you seen those? I mean, uh, where if you look it, up, uh, look it up online, starling murmurations, it's one of the craziest things in the world. All these birds just kind of fly and flock together. He could have created it so that starling murmurations always have the shape of a cross. Jesus could have made it so that the northern lights spell out John 3.16. He could have climbed up onto a throne in Jerusalem and ruled here kingdom when he was here on earth. And yet he did something wildly different. He looked at his disciples eyeball to eyeball. And he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do everything I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. He gives us an invitation and a promise. The invitation is to be part of having people see that the eternal life that they're searching for can be found in Him, and the promise is He's got our back, which means we don't have to be afraid. I think we get freaked out by the word evangelism but I'm about to save you from that freak out. Here it is. The word evangelism does not appear in the Bible. There. You now feel better, right? And the word evangelist only appears three times. In fact, the three times that it appears actually tells us a lot. The first time is in Ephesians 4, where Paul is writing about the gifts that Jesus gives the church. And it says, I give the, the gifts of apostle and prophet, of pastor and teacher and evangelist. And it's funny, evangelist is separated out from apostle and prophet and pastor and teacher, and yet what is the precise role of a pastor and apostle if not to evangelize, if not to proclaim the good news? Because that's what evangelist means. It means to proclaim the good news. The second time we see it is the only time it's attached to a person. Philip is called the Philip the evangelist. He's the guy who famously shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then the third time is the one I really want you to consider today. I'm going to go through more verses that be able to keep up with, but good luck. We're in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, he says this, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, I don't think I'm going to get any pushback when I say that our culture... That the time has come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. The time has come when people will find teachers according to their own desires. The time has come when people will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. So what was Paul doing? He was preparing Timothy for work in a culture that was like that. And he gives them what he calls a solemn charge. And, and, and to, to make sure Timothy knows how serious he is about this charge, he stacks up a bunch of stuff. The father, the son, who's going to judge the living and dead, he says. His appearing, his kingdom. He's like, this is really important. I want This charge is based on all of those things I'm about to give you. It's huge. And then what happens is, in churches, especially churches like ours, we only hear the first thing he says, which is really important. 
He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and teaching. And in circles like ours, we're like, yes, preach the word. <laughs> right? In circles like ours, we're really ready to correct and rebuke. We're not quite ready enough to encourage with great patience and understanding. But what happens is that's not the whole charge. We tend to ignore the very last thing he says, where he says, but as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. What is that? Well, if it only appears three times, it's hard for us to grab what that is. But the work of an evangelist, it means one who proclaims good news. Well, how is that different from an apostle? That's what they did. <laughs> How's that different from a pastor? It's what they did. Well, I think that's why we go to the second time we see it, describing Philip. What did Philip do with his time? We trace Philip through the book of Acts, and what we see is he would proclaim the gospel message and multitudes would hear him. So he's sort of a street preacher. And he would sit down one-on-one -on -one, like with the Ethiopian eunuch and he would sit down and patiently instruct from scripture how Jesus is the only way. And I think he gives us a picture of what the work of an evangelist is. And it's this. It is a both-and work of proclaiming Jesus, be that to multitudes or individuals, and it is almost by necessity outside the local church. And I think this is critically important. Paul was saying to Timothy, a local church pastor in Ephesus, get out of the doors of your church and talk to some people about Jesus. This necessarily happens outside of the church doors. And, and we're in a world where people won't tolerate sound doctrine where they gravitate toward teachers that tell them what they want to hear, where they have itching ears to, uh, to, to just be scratched by whoever makes them feel good, which means they're not going to walk into our churches any longer. Someone asked me at dinner last night, um, like what it's like in our church, because um, do people just kind of show up again um, who are non-believers? And I'll tell you what, I've been doing this. I've been in the same role in the same church for 22 years now. And over that time, there's been a decrescendo in the number of non-believers who just walk in the door. They're just not going to come in anymore. And there's a stat out there that 59 million Americans are what they call nonverts. There's a book called Nonverts. So it's, it's a good book to read. Um, and basically, what a nonvert is, is someone who used to say that they were religious, but they're not anymore. 59 million Americans used to be Muslim used to be Christian, used to be Hindu, but now they're nothing. And that's on the rise. Let me just be clear. Christianity has been tried by this generation and they found it lacking. Our core beliefs are now in this culture considered not just to be wrong, but to be immoral evils. And let me tell you, brothers, we are in our element. This is where Christianity thrives. 
in the first century. This is exactly how Rome was. And Christianity exploded from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Right now in China, the official reports by the Chinese government is that there's 44 million Christians in China. That's the ones they know about. And I've been there. I can tell you there's millions more. There's, there's hundreds, if not hundreds of millions of Christians exploding in, in, in China. Cultures like the one we live in, the, that, that China is like, that, that, that Europe is, is like and has been there ahead of us, and Rome is like, where core beliefs are not only rejected but considered unjust and immoral evils. This is where Christianity shines. We just have to have courage. We get to be salt and light in this culture as we boldly and courageously hold out the truth of the gospel, not just from our pulpits, but in our barber chairs, in our gyms, in our taxi cabs. So I want to call you to something today. This is what I want to call you to. And it's, it's the work of an evangelist, I'm convinced of it, in our culture today. And it's this. It's what I call intentional gospel humility. I believe the future of evangelism is when those three words entangle themselves with one another. So let's talk about the entanglement. We need to have an intentional gospel posture. And what I mean by that is that we are intentional about sharing the gospel and it starts with intentionally being around unbelievers, around non-Christians, around what Scripture even calls as outsiders. And this is a really important point, especially for those of us who are professional Christians. <laughs> it is so easy for us to lock ourselves into our churches, or if you're not, um, if you're not a, a pastor, to lock yourself in your home. And, and, and you can't share the gospel with non-Christians if you don't know any. And by the way, in case you missed it, it's literally in the job description of pastors. Uh, in 1 Timothy, the, the description for elders and elders and pastors, for me, I would say are the same thing. This description that we have here in 1 Timothy 3, 7 has a qualification that is rarely talked about. It's verse 7. Furthermore, 1 Timothy 3, verse 7, furthermore, he, that is this elder, this pastor, must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. And I'll tell you what's crazy about this. Most of us think we're going to fall into disgrace or the devil's trap if we hang out with unbelievers. That's not what he says. He says you have to actually have a good reputation with unbelievers so that you won't fall into disgrace. But that means you have to have a good reputation with unbelievers. They need to see you and see your character and see how you treat your coworkers and see how you treat your spouse enough that they can actually make a judgment about your character. And if you are not that close to them, you're not qualified to be an elder or a pastor. In fact, there's the woman um, by the name of Rachel Gardner. She uh, uh, is a youth worker in northern UK. She was at nine. We're just on a panel together um, about a month or so ago. And one of the things that she said just knocked me down. I just wrote it down. She said, we need to be perilously close to those we are trying to talk to about Jesus. And that's kind of how it feels, isn't it? We got to be dangerously, perilously close to those we're trying to talk to about Jesus. And you know who did that really well? Well, his nickname was Friend of Sinners. One of my favorite accounts in the Gospel of Mark 
is when Jesus calls Levi. And I don't know if you remember this account. He calls Levi to follow him. And do you, does anybody remember in, in Mark uh, chapter 2 where uh, Jesus, when he calls Levi, where he takes Levi? Does anybody remember? Yeah, and where was it? At, it was at Levi's house. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Jesus is like, hey, follow me. Where are we going? Your house. And we're going to have a dinner party at your house. And in that, that, that text, three times tax collectors are mentioned. Why are tax collectors mentioned three times? Because they were considered the worst sinner that anybody could possibly imagine. So then it says tax collectors and notorious sinners. And so the religious guys, the Pharisees, absolutely freak out about the fact that Jesus is going to be hanging out with these people. And this is what we get in chapter 2, verse 17. This is what Jesus says. He says, um, when he heard this, when he heard that they were mad that he was at this party, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I cannot be dogmatic about the next point because the text does not say this. But I think that Jesus said this in front of his new friends. Because I think the Pharisees came in and they're like, what are you doing? Because they came to him and they said, why are you doing this? And right in front of his new friends, he called them sick. <laughs> he called them sinners. He said that they were unhealthy, that they needed a doctor, that they weren't righteous. And they still liked him. That's the sweet spot of evangelism. But here's the deal, and this is critically important in our age. People can sniff out when you're just being their friends because you want something from them, even if that something is something as righteous as salvation. People are not projects. They're not a notch in your belt. They're not a like on your Instagram page. You need to love people, wait for it, just because you love them. People can sniff anything else out. You need to be their friends even if they don't come to Christ. Real friends. Situations like the one I had in the cab are very infrequent unless you're actually looking for them. But situations like my barber are much more uncommon. Most of the people we're going to talk to about Jesus are going to be people that we surround ourselves in day in, day out. And if you truly love them, you're going to be intentional with them about the gospel. And don't forget, they know you're a Christian. They probably do. They should do. And which means that how you treat them and how you treat other people around their circle is going to affect their view of Jesus. Now, all of this is all well and good, but it's hard. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. So I want to give you a simple evangelism hack that's going to sound really hard. <laughs> but it's a way that you can walk out of here and you can share the gospel with somebody in the next six days with this evangelism hack. Talk to a stranger about Jesus before you talk to your friend about Jesus. Now, that may sound terrifying, but you may never see that stranger again. And if you can actually process that piece, then you're going to see those opportunities a, a little bit more. So uh, earlier this week, I was, uh, or last Monday, I guess it is Saturday, it was Monday. Monday, I was checking into a hotel in Milwaukee. And the guy behind the counter uh, checking me into the hotel, he, he said, so are you here for work? And I'm like, yeah. And so I knew what was coming. He's like, what do you do? And I know every time I tell somebody I'm a pastor, it's, it's a conversation killer. Um, but I'm like, I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh, okay. And then, and then the conversation obviously was over uh, because nobody wants to talk to pastors. And then, but he was wearing this really cool medallion thing. That's just, let's, I said, I really like your medallion. Uh, is, is there a story behind that thing? He goes, oh, it's from my favorite band. And I said, really? I said, what band? is it he told me the name and I don't remember the name um, and then he, and I, what kind of music is it and he goes 
I can't believe I'm saying this to a pastor. It's satanic death metal. So think about it for a second. What do you say to that? Process in your mind. What would your first reaction be? What I said was, have you ever seen them in concert? And he's like, yeah. And I said, how was it? He's like, it was so good. I just, I, I saw them down in Chicago and I just, it was just a great show. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah. And I was supposed to see them again. They were coming up to Milwaukee, but they canceled. I'm hoping to see them again in this fall. I said, that's wild. I said, do you go to that concert because um, you like their style of music? Or you like their message? And I could see in his eyes, he knew where I was going. So he was like, it, 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 it's the style of music I like. And I, I realized that the conversation was over, but what was I doing? His name is Jason Shepard. What we all need to learn how to do is how to have good conversations with people. And we all know how to do that. We've all had good conversations with people, right? You know how to have, even if you're introvert, extrovert, no matter what, you know how to have a good conversation with people. But then what we need to think about is how do we transition this good conversation to a God conversation? And, and that could be something as simple as on Monday morning you go to work and, and you say to your coworker, what'd you do this weekend? And then they tell you, and what are they going to ask you back? What'd you, do? what'd you do this weekend? And typically what do we say? I, well, I went up north, I went to the ball game um, or whatever. I mowed my lawn, just hung out with my wife. What if you said, oh, I went to church and I learned this? It's a transition from a good conversation to a God conversation. So on the taxi cab, I knew this guy was Turkish. So I said to him, so can I assume that you're Muslim? I just tried to pop that conversation from good to God. This guy said to me, satanic death metal. He just moved me from good to God. He, did the, he actually made the conversation move because we started talking about spiritual things. And then what you do is you start praying for an opportunity for that God conversation to become a gospel conversation. It didn't happen with the guy at the hotel. It did happen with the guy in the taxi cab. Good God gospel conversations. Now, here is the thing. There's an underlying, underrated key to having good conversations with people that turn to God conversations that turn to gospel conversation. And it's the second entanglement we have. And it's not just to be intentional about the gospel with people, but be intentional in our humility. And let me just be really honest. I, know, I think most of us are probably in Calvinist churches. I mean, I got that impression yesterday by a couple things people said. Um, and I'm a Calvinist too. Here's the thing. Let's just be honest. Calvinists, we are the worst. Can we just admit that? Like, here's the thing. I roll with lots of Christians around the world. I hang out with Lutherans and Pentecostals and, and Methodists. I know a, a Church of England bishop is a friend of mine, and they're planting churches like crazy and kind of this renewal movement inside the Church of England, which is bizarre and amazing what God is doing right there. And what they all tell me in, in maybe not this poignant of language is, what is wrong with you Calvinists? They, they, I always get that. And it's not our beliefs. It's not our positions. It's not our doctrine or our theology. It's our tone. It's our posture. We are not known for being humble. And that is so stupid. I mean, we believe that salvation comes from grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, there is nothing in there that should cause us any sort of hubris, right? We should be the most humble people on the planet based on our theology. 
We don't bring anything to the table if we believe that. We shouldn't have a modicum of arrogance. And yet if Twitter has taught me anything, it's that Calvinists are the worst. Last night, Dr. Copeland reminded us of our Savior Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. You know, I'm stunned when I go to Romans 14, because in Romans 14, there's this fascinating thing. Within the span of five verses, Paul says two things that seem kind of contradictory. Romans 14, 5, he says, each one of you should be convinced in your own mind about disputed matters. Okay, go back four verses in Romans 14, 1. He says, don't argue about disputed matters. You see what he's saying? It's, It's actually bonkers if you get it. You should know what you believe to such a degree, to such an nth degree, that you are fully convinced in your own mind. You just don't know kind of in your own mind, but you are fully convinced in your mind about not just the core doctrines, but the disputed doctrines, right? You should be able to go all the way down and say, I am fully convinced all the way, and then once you are fully convinced in your own mind, you're not supposed to argue with anybody about it, and you don't rage on the internet. Our posture must be intentional Humility. I'm convinced until we are intentionally humble, the world is not going to listen to us. But probably not for the reason you're thinking. The reason our world is not going to listen to us is if we're not intentionally humble, if we have all this swagger and arrogance, if we're always backbiting and backstabbing, we are white noise in a sea of white noise. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but a switch has flipped in our culture. It used to be that Christians were fundamentalists. Now everybody is. The trans activists are fundamentalists. Gun-toting, MAGA-wearing activists are fundamentalists. Woke people are fundamentalists. Anti-woke people are fundamentalists. Everybody's a fundamentalist about any, everything. And in that cultural moment, the, 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 the humility and grace will be the most countercultural thing that we can preach and model in our churches and our lives. And it's biblical. I'm pre- preaching through Colossians right now, and I was kind of stunned at the beginning of Colossians. One of the things I love about uh, Colossae is Colossians was like sort of a, a Colossae was like a has-been city. It was a city that 400 years before the time of Christ was booming and big trade route and had this gnarly red wool and everybody loved the city and they just all went through there. By the time of Paul, it was a crumbling city that didn't really matter. And shortly after he wrote this letter, an earthquake hit and probably wiped the city out and doesn't exist anymore. So it's under rubble. Um, And so it's a has-been city, which a lot of people tend to think those of us from Detroit are in the same type of place. They don't know better, but that's what they think. The Apostle Paul never visited, as far as we know. But he heard their reputation. This is what Paul said about the reputation, which caused them to, him to write them a letter. He says this. Reputation is in verse 4, Colossians 1.4. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Which saints? All of them. It's almost like they were following after Jesus who said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you have love for one another. So let's humbly 
allow scripture to define love for us in a passage that's always read at weddings, but it should be applied to the church. It's in the context of Paul yelling at the Corinthians, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things evangelism in our combative culture is like this. People see us and we are patient. We are kind. We aren't arrogant even when we're right. We're not rude on social media. We're not self-seeking at school board meetings. We're not irritable when we're waiting for our plane at the boarding area. We don't keep a record of wrongs. Can I keep going? Jesus said, the love that you have for one another is how people are going to know that you follow me. But he didn't stop there, did he? He blew it up. Someone said, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, it's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And no one's off limits of that love. That's how we're known. That's why Paul, when he's writing in Colossians, he says this in Colossians 4. He says, act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Your actions should be wise. Your speech should be gracious. Intentional humility will open the doors for you to share the gospel with people. And here's where the rubber meets the road. It's not just intentional gospel. It's not just intentional humility. It's gospel humility humility. We like to throw the word gospel around in our culture, but often we just truncate it. In fact, one of my frustrations is when people truncate the gospel by saying it's the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and they they miss one of the most important theological concepts. It's not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the ascension of Jesus. The fact that right now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, which is why Paul can write in Ephesians 2, verse 6, um, this, that he has also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens with Christ Jesus. This is the one of the things that should give us the most humility, this gospel humility. Our current position is that we are in Christ. You are right now in two places presently at the same time. You can just do your multiverse Marvel stuff here, right? Okay, so you are in two places at the same time. You are in Christ, seated at the heavenlies, at the right hand of God the Father, which means in Him you are already perfect and righteous and holy and clean. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us. It says, for by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being made perfect. You are both perfect, seated in the heavenlies with Jesus, and you are being made perfect right now, where you're dragging around this sinful carcass, which is why you keep falling into sin. It's why you keep getting tempted to sin. It's why you keep failing. It's because you're dragging around this sinful carcass, even though you're already positionally righteous. And it's why you feel guilty about it, and you feel bad about it, because everything inside of your fleshly carcass is longing to be caught up in the positional righteousness you already have with Jesus. I believe that we're already fully righteous in His eyes, even though we're down here. That should make us the most humble people on the planet. That gospel humility is we don't have it all together. We are secure in heaven and we are grounded to the earth. We actually changed our mission statement this last year because of some of these truths at our church. And we proclaim this all the time now. Our mission is at RIV, the name of our church is RIV. 
We invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like him. We want people to know we don't have it all together. We're all stumbling toward Jesus together. We are perfect for all time. We're being made perfect. And do you know who understands this complicated truth? Our culture. You may not even realize this. Our culture is so fundamentalist, but you know what they're not? They're not binary. They can actually hold two competing truths in their head at the same time. And when they see us and we are representing Jesus and we're standing firm for gospel truth and standing firm for what scripture tells us to do, we can also do so in such a way that they feel loved and that we are humble those truths at the same time. One of our interns, uh, her name is Zoe, and she just, her family was missionaries overseas. She just moved back. She's, she's doing an internship with us right now. And she says, being in America, she's realized that we have this unique opportunity to have people create that is different than the one that they're in from a spiritual perspective because the world is listening now. They're searching so hard right now. And if we have a position of gospel humility in ourselves, It'll allow us to be intentional in sharing the gospel with them. So, I have homework for you, and I already alluded it to earlier. I want you to begin to pray, because Jesus said, pray for workers in the harvest. I want you to pray for one another and pray for yourself. Pray that God will give you gospel opportunities. And here's the thing, he's going to give them to you. You're gonna be in a good conversation with somebody and even if you don't realize it or not, in the moment, all of a sudden, it's going to leap from a good conversation to a God conversation. And that moment, you're going to have a choice. Am I going to be obedient or disobedient? What am I going to do with it? I want you to pray right now that God will start to give you opportunities. You'd be shocked at the number of opportunities that just appear when you start praying for them. And then pray that God will have, give you the courage to take the opportunity and to try to take that next step because it does us no good to just have a good conversation turns into a God conversation. Our culture loves that. Great, what do you believe? What do I believe? Just leave it right there. You need to get to a point where you're standing on the gospel and say, no, no listen, there's sin in this world and, and you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and you need to be saved by Jesus. He's the only way. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. You need to get to a point where you explicitly share that gospel truth and pray to God that you'll have opportunities to do that in the next six days. I'll give you a Sabbath. That's why we're doing six. Six days. And then when that opportunity pops up, take it. Don't be afraid. The more you do it, the more those opportunities will be visible to you and the more chances you're going to have to tell people about Jesus. So I'm going to pray for you right now. And I don't remember when he said we were supposed to be done, but we'll do Q&A until he tells us we're done. All right? So let's do this. Heavenly Father, I just pray for these men right now. I just pray for intentional gospel humility. I pray for anybody here who's afraid that they would be intentional. I pray for anyone here who has been arrogant and prideful that they would be humble. And I just pray for those of us who have really not truly grasped the depth of the gospel that you would make it real to us. Break our hearts for the people around us. Break our hearts for strangers and friends.
coworkers and neighbors. We're just blown away that you chose to use us to tell people about your son. It's bananas. It makes no sense that <laughs> you chose it. So we just pray that we would be faithful and obedient and that we'd leave the results up to you. Give us opportunities, God. Help us to be courageous to take them. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.